This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the life insurance licensing program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com. Hi, and welcome back to the CE Drive podcast. This is Jason Watt. Today's episode is a little bit of an experiment. I've been happy to do a little bit of experimenting lately. This one is actually going to take us over two episodes. We've got a lot of content here. Had a really in-depth, thorough interview with Steve Vidang over at Anchor Pacific. Steve is a fellow that actually we met weirdly. Bob met him on a plane and yeah, just turned into a nice relationship here. I've enjoyed Steve's approach to the relationship between the financial planner and, as you'll hear discussed quite a bit in the interview here, the portfolio manager. This episode will be good for IROC credits, the much-promised IROC credits. By extension, though, that means there are some credits where it's not going to be valid. You have to be careful if you're in Saskatchewan. This is all investment management in Saskatchewan, for example, limits the number of credits you can get on the investment management side. You have to track that. You have to know how many investment-related credits you're getting if you're in the province of Saskatchewan. And it will not be good for accident and sickness credits in Alberta. will be good for life insurance credits, however, in Alberta. And the same will hold true for the next episode as well. So if you're looking specifically for Alberta ANS credits or If you're in one of the provinces that restricts the number of credits you can get on the investment side, then you'll want to be careful about how you use the credits available from this episode. But I am excited we were able to get something that is good for IROC credits. We're right at the beginning of IROC cycle eight, and that's probably pretty good timing for some of you out there. Of course, I prefer to see people knock those credits out early instead of stretching to get them right at the end. I find people get better education when they do that. And really, what I like to see, and you've heard me talk about this before, is I like to see people knock out their credits relatively early in their CE cycle. And after that, you can just go do whatever education you need to do that will genuinely make your life and your client experiences better without having to worry about whether or not it has credits. I think sometimes when we're looking for credits first and education second, then the quality or the outcomes associated with that education suffer. Whereas if we look for education first and credit second, we can find things that match up more closely to what we actually might need. The color for today's episode is red. The color for today's episode is red. Okay, you'll hear in this episode that I actually do introduce Steve by name, full name, firm, role, all that kind of stuff. It's fairly obvious here. You'll hear it even as I deliver the bio that Steve is, for lack of a better term, selling something. And none of us on this call should be critical of anybody who is selling something. However, I think that there's a ton of good education in here. And unlike my normal interviews where I would be dealing with financial planner who, if they talk about a client scenario, might be exposing that person's confidentiality, we don't have that concern here. Steve doesn't talk about any specific client scenarios. Really just a good survey of what the discretionary investment management world looks like and yeah, lots here. You can hear in the questions, he's anxious to get to the detail, really digs in and nerds out on those investment regulation, or investment industry details. You can tell he has a passion for this, which I really enjoyed. It's part of what brought him to the table here. And I do want you to think about, in general, whether or not a discretionary manager, or if you're going to go more specifically, the outsourced chief investment officer, whether that type of role works well in your firm. I know quite a few people who are using a model like this today. 
I'm not sure for those who are using a model like this how often they sort of shopped around or if the meetings were just what I talked about, you're sitting beside somebody on a plane, it turns out they offer this service and you say, you know, actually that sounds a lot easier and just move over to that outsourced model. I would encourage you, no matter what sort of services you're using, whether it's outsourced investment management or whatever insurers you place business with, or whatever technology, financial planning software maybe you use in your business, that you do think about how you choose that. What do you look for in terms of those products and services that you acquire and how do they actually help to drive your business? Now, before we get into the discussion with Steve here, I have to define a few terms. Like I mentioned, he's happy to nerd out and I know some of you will be very comfortable with these terms, but some of you will not know these. Right at the beginning, Steve makes mention of sell-side relationships, and this is a common distinction for those who make their living in wealth management, in investment banking, that kind of thing. And there's the buy side and the sell side. Uh, sell side is normally your client-facing investment analyst. This is somebody who would be in the business of somehow helping individual clients or institutional clients to figure out what investments they should put into their portfolio. The buy side is somebody who works, let's say, at a fund or at a pension, something like that, who figures out what assets that fund or that pension should be picking up. Steve also uses the term self-dealing here. Self-dealing is generally a frowned upon practice, uh, sometimes illegal depending on your position in investment management. Self-dealing means that you are operating in your own self-interest rather than a client's self-interest. The idea here is that you can have a proper fiduciary relationship where you're acting in somebody else's best interest, or you can self-deal where you act in your own best interests. Obviously, the fiduciary relationship is the one that clients would generally want to enter into. Steve also mentions the term securitization here. Of course, we heard this term quite a bit in the wake of the uh, credit crisis, but securitization just means taking any sort of investment or any sort of opportunity and turning that into something that a client can actually buy. So, of course, it was used quite a bit as a negative term in the wake of the credit crisis because there was some questionable securitization practices there. But on the whole, securitization is necessary. This is how we bring capital into markets. This is how we get people opportunities to invest. And something I'm going to broach with Steve, if we have an opportunity for another discussion later on, I wanna to talk to him a little bit about how his background in securitization impacts any due diligence that he does today on the investments that he puts within client portfolios or recommends for client portfolios. Most of you will be familiar with the term discretionary trading. Discretionary trading, of course, just means that there's no requirement to get client authorization for each trade, that the client has basically passed over the full control of their portfolio to an investment manager, an asset manager of some sort. On that note, let's hear from Steve. I think you'll enjoy this interview quite a bit. I did a lot of learning in here. You'll hear it as we go through this, and I hope you get the same amount of learning out of it that I did. We have joining us today, Steve Adang. Steve is the president and founder of Anchor Pacific Investment Management Corp, or we'll just call them Anchor Pacific now, a fully independent investment firm and outsourced CIO. We're going to talk about that term a little bit here in the interview, an outsourced chief investment officer. And they're registered as a portfolio manager with the British Columbia Securities Commission. Anchor Pacific leverages data, research, process, technology, infrastructure, and other economies of scale to provide sophisticated full access investment platforms and customized solutions for high net worth and multi-generational families, family offices, financial advisors, foundations, endowments, pension plans, and other institutions. As the firm's chief investment officer, Steve is responsible for the development and maintenance of all the firm's investment activities, strategies, and solutions. Steve previously held senior level positions at Deutsche Bank, ABN AMRO, and Amherst Securities, and in his 20 plus years of industry experience has acquired 
a reputation for being an extremely disciplined risk manager, allocator, and steward of capital. Today, Steve joins us to discuss the firm's outsourced chief investment officer offering for financial advisors, and we'll discuss the benefits and features of their unique model, which is focused on building a partnership culture and working with advisors to increase the probability of achieving better client outcomes, optimizing the overall client experience, and adding franchise value to the advisor's practice. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Thank you, Jason. Uh, Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the kind introduction. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll uh, get started here. Just if you can give us a little background on yourself and Anchor Pacific, if there's anything in addition to that uh, bio you want to throw in there. So my background stems mainly, uh, as you mentioned, from uh, 15 plus years uh, working uh, on Wall Street and uh, what is known as uh, the sell side. Earned my stripes uh, coming out of uh, business school in the mid-90s as uh, a trader within fixed income and, uh, and more um, narrowly within uh, the area of, of what's known as uh, securitization, which is the uh, packaging of various uh, loans, whether they be mortgage or consumer-related and the making of them into tradable instruments, which uh, we would then uh, distribute and trade amongst uh, mainly institutional investors. Through that, I worked roughly two-thirds of my career in the States, and the the latter third uh, working for Deutsche Bank, uh, running the commercial real estate capital markets uh, for the Asia-Pacific region uh, based out of Tokyo. So after 15 plus years, I moved to Vancouver for personal reasons, late 2010, and uh, formed the genesis of Anchor Pacific, which at the time was focused mainly on research and advisory and really became the start of uh, really what the roots of of what Anchor Pacific has come to be, which is uh, a highly data-driven technical operation to distill uh, complex investment decisions and bring those through into something that all consumers of investment can participate in by virtue of the discretionary accounts that we manage on behalf of the various constituents that you mentioned. Um, So we became a portfolio manager in 2016, and we uh, have a one centralized investment process and IP repository with multiple constituents that we target to provide the service to. You mentioned the constituents that you work with here. I guess you don't see yourself as an asset gatherer. You see yourself dealing with folks who gather assets. Would that be accurate? Yeah, that's a a good way to put that. And I think asset gatherer, it has a bit of a negative connotation because assets obviously drive revenues in the industry. And while that's important, I think it really stems more from the mindset of is your business one that's focused more on gathering assets or is it really on the other things uh, that are important, namely uh, the delivery of a solution and a service that is commensurate with that solution? And so really my distinction comes down to one where you have a typical model that has been more of a sell-side model where the typical retail or private client consumer of investments has almost had to operate in a buyer beware type mentality because of compensation, frankly. And so as the industry moves more to fee-based advice that is more aligned with the clients, then um, you know, it really comes down to the delineation between the delivery of a solution in the form of a, a program versus that of a product or a a series of discrete products. And so, you know, we view ourselves uh, more as asset allocators. uh, And that really means that we are a consumer of investments uh, as opposed to someone that is sold investments. And that's how we represent that to our, our various clients and strategic partners. I think most of my clients would see themselves maybe as relationship gatherers, not so much as asset gatherers. I like that distinction, though. I, I think it's important to be able to kind of hang your hat someplace like that. So, I, you know, that uh, 
asset allocation is so important. And I'm sure that relationships are important to your business as well. For certain. Now, can you just describe a little bit, a lot of the folks listening will not be familiar at all with the ICPM model. Can you maybe talk about the model and the licensing and registration requirements? Sure. ICPM stands for Investment Counselor Portfolio Manager. And I, and I think speaking to, uh, I'm speaking to Canada, uh, more or less, uh, is the various levels of registration that uh, firms and individuals uh, need to undertake. So Investment Council is mainly uh, offering uh, fee-based discretionary investment solutions of some kind to a constituent or a consumer of investments. So think uh, retail private client or high net worth family enterprise of, of some sort. I guess kind of the advocacy body for investment counselor portfolio managers in Canada is PMAC, which is the Portfolio Management Association of Canada, of which there are about 200 member firms, ourselves being one of them. It's not to say that all investment counselors are members, uh, although many are. You know, some of the commonality uh, of the managers is, uh, I think the biggest one is, uh, is holding true to the fiduciary standard of firm alignment with client interest and client interest alone in the form of one fee being paid by one side. And, uh, and I think the other one would be having uh, the Provincial Securities Commission, uh, one of them as your principal regulator. So in our case, because we're based in Vancouver, we are regulated by the British Columbia Securities Commission. Most uh, of the firms, and I'll speak kind of to the PMAC roster, are independently owned, but many are also part of um, larger financial institutions and asset management firms. So there is a, a good mix of independence as well as more conglomerate-like organizations there. And there are typically three levels of registration that uh, we can speak to here. The one is, is the portfolio management registration. Uh, and for an individual, it would be uh, formally known as an advising representative. There are about 5,000 advising representatives or portfolio managers as they're informally known as individuals within Canada's uh, financial services landscape. Uh, and there are about 120,000 total financial service professionals in Canada that are registered to, to deal in some form of financial services. So 5,000 advising reps slash portfolio managers 115,000 that carry the formal designation of dealing representative, dealing generally representing more of that sell side type service being provided. Jumping back to firm categories, uh, you've got the portfolio manager, you've got an exempt market dealer, and you've got an investment fund manager. And generally speaking, the exempt market dealer registration is for portfolio management firms that also manage funds and carry an investment fund manager designation and they want to self-deal and as i mentioned uh so some portfolio managers are now in their own business of manufacturing products and have a fund manager license so Acre Pacific presently is portfolio manager and portfolio manager alone. So that means we, we provide investment counsel only. And presently, the, the plan is, is not to undertake um, either of those registrations uh, because they're not a present fit for, for where we are uh, specifically. Um, the capital requirements of investment council firms are different uh, depending on the category of registration. Uh, you must maintain a certain amount of excess working capital as a firm at the PM level, which is $25,000. At the EMD level, it's $50,000. And at the IFM level, it's $100,000. And those are all inclusive. So if you're all three, then you've got to maintain excess capital at the highest level of $100,000. Some of the other things, as I mentioned, fiduciary to do portfolio management. Uh, fiduciary is different if you're managing a fund because you're a fiduciary to a fund and not to a specific client. So 
that sometimes gets lost on uh, consumers. I mentioned there are uh, excess working capital uh, requirements. There's uh, the maintenance of a financial institution bond. uh, And then generally there's a a whole series of best practices that one tends to follow in maintaining the business model and being a member of of an organization such as PMAC. The working capital requirements, I just have a couple of questions about this, mostly out of my own curiosity. So you report to BC Securities Commission for that, and what would be the reporting frequency? You're required to maintain the working capital at all times. Uh, and if you're not, there's some um, protocol within the national instrument as to what you need to do. You're required to self-certify on a monthly basis. And as a portfolio manager in British Columbia, you are required to file uh, an an annual set of uh, financial statements at year end uh, with the Securities Commission with a formal calculation of working capital. Do you have to get audited financial statements then? Is that part of that requirement? You do. Audited financial statements to apply for registration. Uh, So in our case, that would have been late 2015. Uh, We became registered, I believe I said, in January of 2016. And then at each year end by March 31st. So for us, it would be March 31st of 2020 for 2019. You yourself would have no direct relationship with the securities regulators that are the SROs that most people on the call would be familiar with. You would have no direct relationship with MFDA or IROC. Would that be fair? We are separate from those uh, regulatory bodies. We are not a part of those. We custody, because I'm not sure if I mentioned that. So, you know, one thing that is important is where assets are held, uh, where client assets are held, and and what are the rules around uh, what a discretionary arrangement looks like. And so some of the larger firms will self-clear. In other words, they will maintain their own back office and set up the requisite uh, structure and safeguard to custody assets, uh, meaning where assets are held. We and many others will contract generally an IROC member firm that would act as the client custodian. Generally, that is uh, can be a Schedule One bank or it could be another uh, financial institution. So some of the more um, common ones here in Canada are National Bank uh, investment network, which is a part of National Bank Financial. Um, there's Fidelity Clearing uh, Canada, which is part of the larger Fidelity operations in the U.S. There's Raymond James, there's Canaccord, there's uh, Viso, there's a handful, which is formerly Credential. So there's a handful of others as well. And of course, anybody who's read a Part A prospectus for a mutual fund will be aware of that custodian relationship. So that, yeah, that's good. It's uh, interesting to hear this from a different perspective. And just one other follow-on question. So when you refer to those roughly 115,000 dealing representatives, those are people that would have some category of registration where they're most likely through MFDA or IROC. That's accurate? I would say that that's the case. Um, it depends on kind of where you go to your source, but you know, within the NRD CSA database, generally you can find an individual that's registered and what registrations they hold and uh, in, in what uh, provinces. Actually, on that note, are you, would I find you on the NRD? Yes, you would. Okay. That's a lot of good stuff. I think a lot of people will find that regulatory stuff interesting, a little nerding out there, but that's good. What about this idea? You've mentioned this a little bit and this uh, came up at the intro, but the outsourced uh, chief investment officer, and I, I hadn't actually heard this presentation until you and I chatted. I'm interested in this. Can you talk a little bit about what the criteria are here, what that really looks like from your perspective? Let me first explain what it is to kind of distill and demystify um, the term, which may come off as intimidating, but it really isn't. Essentially, it's an arrangement by contract in which a party could be a family office, it could be some form of an institutional investor, or it could be, in the case of something more dear to this audience, some form of professional financial practitioner, where by that contract, a third party firm, such as ourselves, uh, is engaged to manage all or a portion of the investment portfolio of that party or of the parties uh, that are represented in the case of, say, a financial advisor. And the idea is that the outsourced CIO provides a comprehensive all-in-one offering uh, as a key element of of that firm's value proposition. So the outsourced CIO provides a specialized and elite investment expertise, a commitment to uh, institutional caliber, 
infrastructure, all of which would be typically cost and personnel prohibitive for all but the largest families institutions. So what this does is it allows the uh, internal executive team of say that family or that institution or that financial advisory practice to focus more on strategic objectives uh, with respect to running their respective enterprises on a day-to-day -day basis. I think a key construct of this is that it is a contract and it is delivered through a fiduciary prism. And that fiduciary prism suggests accountability as opposed to a firm that just provides research or uh, provides ideas that then have to be uh, bought into and the decision uh, be taken outside of, of their hands. As someone who has been a, a risk manager and responsible for significant amounts of bank shareholder capital and balance sheet in the past, we've always been comfortable with uh, our accountability with respect to, to making risk decisions. And, and that's really what the spirit of an, of an outsourced uh, CIO is. So some of the firms that are involved here at a, at a large level and managing um, pension fund assets uh, are also some of the major consulting firms uh, that many would have heard about, say a Mercer or an Aon. And what can be confusing is, is they've got a, uh, a consulting business where they make recommendations essentially, and then they actually have an outsourced CIO business where they perform and, and make and, and are held to to those decisions uh, themselves. Does, does that make sense? It does, yeah. I'm curious a little bit about, you talk about this high standard for accountability. Uh, can you maybe describe a little bit about what that looks like as far as a relationship with a, a client brought to you by a financial advisor? Let me provide a little bit more background on the on the outsourced CIO backdrop, and then we can kind of get into that if that makes sense, Jason. Sounds good, yeah. Um, because I do think there's a, a just a, a few more things that need to be just kind of filled in, uh, so everyone's kind of up to speed. So the the consort of the outsourced CIO began in the late '80s. Two uh, gentlemen, one last name of Hurdle, the other last name of Callahan that worked at Goldman Sachs, and they founded a firm called, not surprisingly, Hurdle Callahan, uh, which is presently uh, still an, an active outsourced CIO uh, firm that manages uh, in excess of $20 billion of discretionary investor capital, mainly for small and mid-sized institutions and endowments. The industry itself is now approaching uh, $2.5 trillion in assets globally. Uh, and growing in recent years at about a 20% clip. Uh, and uh, with pensions, uh, both defined benefit and defined contribution and endowments, uh, typically the top users later, you know, kind of in the post-crisis to join this party has now been uh, financial advisory practices, uh, mainly in the U.S. or what are known as uh, registered investment advisors. And that's where I think um, some of that applicability uh, may may port over here to the uh, Canadian financial advisory practice. And, and that's where we are really structuring um, ourselves to be uh, a partner to many of those um, audience members here uh, that may be listening in, uh, CFPs that uh, are, are looking to take advantage of the, the redundancies uh, in investment process, technology, infrastructure, and architecture that, uh, that specialized firms are able to provide while they focus on, uh, on more of their, um, their core competencies. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And then I'm curious to see a little bit of what that relationship looks like. So, so you've got a financial planner, a financial advisor who brings you a client. And I'm interested a little bit in how that relationship plays out. Where's the sort of connectedness with the advisor? Where's the connectedness with the client? How do the three of you all interact with each other? You know, I think first and foremost, you're talking about a partnership between two firms or uh, it, it could be individuals within two respective firms that are, once again, providing complementary skill sets to deliver something that is um, 
likely to achieve higher probability of a, of a client meeting their outcome. In the end, it, it's, it really is all about meeting client needs. And so I, I think that the key constructs are, and we can get into a little bit more of the specifics after we cover a little bit more of the background, is that it's a partnership. It works for the end client when you think about it, because you've got the more aligned strategic advisors you have seated at the same side of the table working for them, the higher likelihood that um, you're going to minimize all of the different you know, behavioral related uh, mistakes and things that tend to happen when you have multiple advisors that are sitting and kind of operating in silos. So when you kind of think about it in two ways, there's the scalable, repeatable investment process that client and advisors, clients are able to participate in things that they may not normally have access to. Uh, And then there's the customization to an investor's unique circumstances. So I think a lot of that would focus around time horizon, need for income, tolerance for real illiquidity and the ability to adapt that. And for us to really adapt our service as the outsourced CIO to the service plan that the financial advisory practice wants to maintain. So we're looking to really work with forward-thinking practitioners on a programmatic basis as opposed to on a one-off basis. Now, that being said, you always have to start on a, a file, but the idea there then is that we can create a deliverable that meshes with what the advisor is trying to deliver to their clientele. How much adoption of this have we seen in Canada? And uh, maybe you can give the United States uh, by way of comparison here. Canada has been, I'd say, slow to adapt to this. Uh, I would actually say that outsourced CIO in a partnership is non-existent in Canada. That's due to a lot of factors, some that we'll get into briefly and others that maybe we get into uh, more offline. I want to get back to one other element of the relationship that is critical is that in the structure that we are offering, uh, the client relationship resides solely and the ownership of that client relationship solely resides with the advisor who has originated and cultivated that relationship over uh, many, you know, many years and possibly even longer decades in some case. So in essence, our relationship manager that's responsible for the practice would be essentially a relationship manager to the advisor as opposed to a relationship manager to the specific end client. Um, And that is very different than what the typical uh, model is here in Canada, which is really more one where a, uh, you know, say an MFDA advisor refers a existing client to a portfolio manager firm and and is paid uh, some form of a referral fee and is uh, essentially a trailer. And, uh, you know, they become kind of a paid bystander, but uh, but get removed from a lot of the process uh, around investment. You know, a lot of these firms would, would then have their own uh, relationship managers. So this isn't outsourcing. Uh, I mean, it is and it isn't, if that makes sense. Uh, but I don't view it as true outsourcing, mainly because uh, these firms that are offering these services are not operating necessarily with true open architecture, which I haven't spoke to yet, which I think is the core key criteria in having uh, a successful uh, outsource CIO firm. And, and what that means is is that uh, you, you have access to, to investment strategies with a global reach uh, that are best in class, and, and, and they are all third party. So meaning um, when we invest investor capital, whether it be for a direct client or through uh, a financial advisor partner through, uh, through uh, an OCIO service, 
we don't actually execute ourselves. We choose managers or vehicles that uh, access uh, various investment classes and investment strategies uh, that work within uh, an approach that is um, essentially emulated from what uh, the top endowments and, and pensions and um, in global sovereign wealth funds uh, employ. So that's a, a pretty significant distinction uh, between open and closed architecture. Um, so I've spoken about Canada, uh, and you asked me to speak about the U.S., which is, I think, where the parallel is. You know, that's a that's a completely different story, and where things get really interesting um, because the the market is incredibly active, vibrant, growing, and thriving uh, amongst uh, advisory practices within the states. This is interesting for a lot of reasons, but I think uh, I think one of them that is most interesting about it is that financial advisor can choose to internalize their investment management offering, meaning they do it themselves and they become self-sufficient, or they can outsource it to a firm such as ourselves. Okay. And the barriers to this internalization are actually lower in the U.S. than in Canada. Uh, and what that means is that the designation in Canada, so I spoke about the 5,000 or so individuals that are investment counselors. CFA, Charter Financial Analyst, is a, uh, is a big designation. Uh, 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 so it's a barrier. Uh, the others are the, the regulation. Uh, and we mentioned the financial institutional bond, the uh, the working excess working capital coverage, uh, having uh, you know someone do act as a dedicated compliance officer, all significantly higher barriers to entry uh, in Canada than in the U.S., where it's easier to become an RIA. Uh, it's generally state regulated, uh, Series Seven based. Uh, last I checked, no minimum capital. Uh, you certainly have to have a compliance function, but uh, I don't believe there's a CFA requirement. So USRIAs actually have a lower uh, regulatory barrier to enter in terms of offering their own investment management services, yet they're not doing it. They're doing exactly the opposite. And there is a this is more prevalent within the, the larger RIA practices as well. So these are practices that are, that are responsible in a relationship for assets that are in excess of, of $2 billion uh, would be a, a decent sized practice, but not uh, certainly uh, an outlier. And uh, so that suggests that the scaling motivation is quite significant. Just a, a few other things to speak about with respect to the trend in the U.S. Uh, so there are surveys that give a uh, an overlay to advisors and their opinions and their practices around externalizing their investment management. Satisfaction rates are extremely high for those that do choose to outsource. Uh, in one survey, uh, it's 96%, and it's it's 100% for firms that uh, have practices exceeding $3 billion in assets. More than 60% of those outsourcing advisors have been in the same relationship with their provider uh, in excess of five years. Uh, one in three advisors outsource all client accounts uh, with advisors two times more likely to outsource large accounts. Uh, that's the scaling trend. And then three times likely to outsource new accounts. And so what that tells me is that for those that are in a form of transition, it may not make sense to transition your current assets, your current clients, but new clients are more likely to be transitioned, especially as, as, as larger clients with more complex uh, needs are coming into their practices. Yeah, I think something that we can deal with, maybe if we want to do this again at some point, is to talk about that, that repapering or that transitioning of clients. I feel like that's probably a pretty hefty topic. Just to close a loop here. So when, when you talk about RIAs outsourcing, a good chunk of that is RIAs just outsourcing to other RIAs. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I'd say that is a, an accurate categorization. Uh, 
what I would specify there is these are RIAs that have different, uh, I guess, kind of priorities and realizations regarding uh, what their value proposition is. So the ones that are outsourcing to the investment specialist would typically be those that don't view their internal IM capabilities as core to their value proposition, yet it's important. So either they don't have the personnel, they don't have the infrastructure, uh, they just don't have the resources. Uh, And for them, it's about relationship building, it's about planning, it's about uh, spending time with clients, and it's not about that excess time that many uh, just don't have uh, to service existing clients or to grow their businesses to where they want to be. And so you have that advisor that is now transitioning how they see themselves and how they want to position themselves with clients as to more of the family CFO type role. And then uh, looking to another firm to essentially be that uh, family CIO, which would be uh, you know possibly another RIA or a firm that is more dedicated to the investment management uh, side of the equation. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'm wondering about any other reasons why an advisory firm might consider the outsourced CIO function. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, as I mentioned, right, there's a there's a few overarching questions an advisor or a, a group of advisors in a practice need to to ask themselves. And, uh, you know, it, it starts with really where do you spend most of your time? You know, what are you doing and for how long? Uh, and what is your core competency? Uh, and within that, as I mentioned, where does the uh, investment management portfolio management uh, fit into that? Is it core to your value proposition? Uh, and are you going to internalize it? Or do you need to to bring someone in for that? And then it's also, where are you going? Where do you see your practice going? How does that line up with what's happening within the industry and what's happening within uh, the population of individuals and families that have complex needs? And then I think one of the things that we tend to ask financial advisors when we have discussions with them about this concept is what are your pain points, right? You know, every business has pain points. Uh, We certainly have ours and we know what they are. And uh, the key for us to be able to provide value to those practices is being able to identify uh, where they have uh, pain points and and help them bring some efficiency to their business uh, and also some added, you know, franchise value in the form of the ability to grow. You know, I mentioned, uh, you know, some of the surveys uh, and white papers that have uh, polled the participants and, uh, you know, many have been able to grow their businesses uh, substantially as a result of outsourcing their business, uh, either through the freeing up of time and capacity or also just having a a differentiated offering that they never had in the past that allows them to access a a client that may not have been uh, attainable to them in the future. So that's kind of some of the questions. The bigger backdrop is one where you actually, you don't have an industry uh, that's growing. Uh, Canada in particular has a a relatively small population, aging, uh, healthy immigration, so that's good. But you've got a lot of uh, uh, of evolution of the industry. Uh, wealth management has moved beyond, uh, you know, whether it's the sale of mutual funds and insurance-related products to, you know, more integrated fee-based uh, planning and investment management. You've got a movement by fintech and the overall sharing economy, which continues to. Uh, spur uh, consumer advocacy around uh, transparency and and cost rationalization. And what that basically means is that fees are under pressure and revenues are at risk. Um, I think MFDA advisors are seeing a variety of competitors, whether they be banks, digital advisors, low-cost DIY trading platforms, uh, as well as, um, you know, just some of the 
some of the, the intergenerational bifurcation of solutions where advisors are going to be at risk of losing clients as money is passed along to the next generation. Uh, you see that also with, um, you know, with husbands and wives and spouses when one passes as well. Um, so you combine that with the realization that the last 10 years of investment returns are, in our opinion, an outlier and that forward returns are going to be more normalized and lower uh, for balanced portfolios, well thought out portfolios. And in short, uh, there are a lot of headwinds, but that also leads to a lot of opportunities uh, for an advisor to um, differentiate their offering. And so I think those that uh, that adapt and evolve their their practices, um, you know, can bring enhanced value to their clients. And and those that don't are going to be at risk to um, to some of these lower cost competitors that I mentioned, as well as uh, those that are offering uh, multi generational uh, solutions. So it really kind of comes down to uh, to a shift in mindset and uh, to move beyond the status quo. All right, lots of meat there, and I've got a few things that I want to address, just follow-on items, uh, terms people may not be familiar with from that interview. First off, we heard quite a bit of discussion in there about working capital. Uh, working capital is an accounting term, and it really just refers to how much cash you have in a company in order to be able to deploy that cash. It's literally all your short-term assets minus all your short-term liabilities or current assets minus current liabilities. And generally, it's reflective of at least the short-term financial health of any sort of business entity. Uh, Steve makes reference to the Series 7 exam here. The Series 7 is the American equivalent to the Canadian Securities course, uh, roughly equivalent to the Canadian Securities course. Uh, basically, it lets you do the same things you can do upon completion of the Securities course. Uh, Steve also makes mention of the term custodian here. I hope everybody's familiar with this, but basically what happens here is instead of having an investment dealer, and let's just deal with a mutual fund company, for example, so we could look at somebody like McKenzie, well, McKenzie doesn't actually hold the investments that are sitting within McKenzie mutual funds. Instead, they have a custodian who holds those investments. And the idea there is to create a degree of separation between McKenzie and the ownership of those investments. That's an element of protection for the client. And it really prevents a sort of conflict of interest situation. Or if McKenzie somehow runs into some difficulty, then you still have the custodian often their own relationship holding those securities. So that custodian relationship, very normal in asset management, and it does create a little bit of a barrier that's designed to help protect the client in the case of firm's financial difficulties, in case a firm goes bankrupt or whatever the case is. Here, quite a bit of discussion in here about regulation and the national instruments. Uh, so the national instruments, course you're familiar with if you've done your mutual funds course or your securities course the national instruments are the national bodies of administrative law that are created by the Canadian securities administrators and then implemented at the provincial level so the provinces each decide how they're going to implement the national instruments however it's pretty much universal. Almost all the national instruments look the same in every province. There are some exceptions, notably on the exempt market side, a few narrow exceptions with respect to licensing. But for the most part, you would find every province adopts the same national instruments. Actually, we just had a recent example of a province that looks like it's going to have a different national instrument than others. And that is uh, Ontario apparently is not going to ban the deferred sales charge whereas other provinces will. Uh, that means that there will be nine provinces and three territories that all adopt one version of a national instrument and Ontario will have a different version of that national instrument. We hear Steve in the interview talk about the PMAC, the Portfolio Manager Association of Canada. This is not a regulator and Steve rightly says not everybody in his business is a member of PMAC. This is really a membership organization. 
And those of you who are members or who are who work with member firms, sorry, that are part of MFDA or IROC, you're in a different position here. MFDA and IROC are both SROs, self-regulatory organizations, which means they do have uh, regulatory authority. An entity like PMAC can have best practices or code of conduct for its members, but has no direct regulatory authority. And as of the time of this recording, for example, the FP Canada and FP Canada Institute are in that role. Now, possibly with what's happening in Ontario and Saskatchewan, with the passage of legislation there around financial planning, title protection, we might see FP Canada move into uh, an SRO type of role, although we'll see. It depends on how that all shakes out in Ontario, Saskatchewan, and potentially other provinces as well. I've heard rumblings that Alberta is not too far from doing something similar. Two other U.S. terms that we heard Steve use in here were RIA and TAMP. RIA is a registered investment advisor. This is a category of a registration that a lot of independent American financial advisors will use. Really, it removes any sort of direct attachment to an investment dealer, and it gives the the person operating in that RA model a fiduciary relationship with their clients. A lot of financial planners in the United States, a lot of CFP certificates in the United States would hold that RIA or would, uh, would sort of operate as RIAs. And then a TAMP, the Turnkey Asset Management Program, this is a, a service uh, kind of similar to what we would call in Canada the Investment Council Portfolio Manager role, the ICPM. That's very similar to what a TAMP would do. I would suggest the difference is there's been a lot more uh, acceptance or take up of TAMPs in the United States than what we see on the ICPM side. And I think some of Stephen's statistics support that. The TAMP model is often even used by people who actually could manage funds on a discretionary basis, but say, you know, that's kind of a pain. I'd rather pass that off to somebody who does that full time. The number for today's episode is three. The number for today's episode is three. You'll be able to get your continuing education credits by going to bccquiz.online. That's BCC as in Business Career College, bccquiz.online. And there's a little quiz you'll do there, just a few questions. And if you're already a subscriber, then it will issue you a certificate. If you're not already a subscriber, then you'll be able to sign up there and you'll be able to get your continuing education credits that way. Okay, thanks very much for joining us today. I hope that that was useful. I hope you learned a lot. I know I sure did in the first chunk of that interview. We'll have the second part of that in about two weeks' time. Not sure exactly how release schedules are going to work right now with this IROC CE credit thing. So bear with us. Be patient, please. And thanks very much for listening. Okay, a few people uh, help out with getting this podcast to air. Joseph Tong does music and production. Marjorie Lewis produces continuing education certificates when the machine doesn't. Maria Nguyen does all of our continuing education approvals. Desiree Kalinchuk and Penny Watt take care of our marketing. Make sure that there are people listening to the podcast. <laughs>